0: Well, last Lord's Day, we began our study on the doctrine of God's covenant with man by discussing why exactly this doctrine is important. As I stated last week, it's an area that's oftentimes overlooked in many non-reformed circles and even in some reformed circles. Now, I grew up in the church and I don't recall ever hearing anything talked about as it pertains to covenants, really until I got saved and started working in a Christian bookstore. Now, I stated last week that a proper understanding of this doctrine is important as it will help to shape other doctrines that we'll be looking at moving forward from Christ as our mediator, even to his return. Now, in highlighting the importance of understanding God's covenant with man, I gave six reasons why that was. I had mentioned that it highlights the graciousness of God in condescending to us and providing a way of salvation I said that it gave, it gives us the understanding that God does deal with his people differently than he does the rest of the world. Thirdly, it solidifies the fact that God is serious in keeping his promise to his church. Fourth, it strengthens our faith in times of difficulty because we know that God will not forget those whom he has covenanted with. Fifth, it gives us confidence in our prayers because of our unique relationship with him. And the last point I gave was that it confirms the fact that there is only one way of salvation for all the people of God, faith in Jesus Christ alone. All of these are why this doctrine is so important for us to understand. Now, as we move on this week and for the remaining weeks that we have ahead, I want you to think about that as we start diving into the finer points of God's covenantal dealings. Now, as for today. We're going to deal specifically with the ins and outs of covenants, what they are, the essential elements of a covenant, types of covenants, so on and so forth. Also, we're going to look at covenants as presented in the scriptures. And the reason why I want to spend this lesson dealing in this area is that from one end, I think it will help us to understand why we term certain dealings with God and man, and even within within the Godhead as covenantal in nature, and also, too, because I do believe it will help to continue to see more clearly that big picture that God, that God has as it pertains to um, the big plan in mind. Now, in regards to that first point, something that is apparent to me and a lot of people is, you know, the reality of the fact that You know, logical thinking and deduction is something that's pretty much dwindled to almost irrelevance in our culture today and sadly even in the church. People simply don't know how to draw conclusions. To put it another way, you know, we have become a culture where if we see, for example, the mathematical question, just to keep it simple, two plus two, and we hear someone referring to that as four, we look at them as though they're crazy. How can you keep calling two plus two four? Nowhere in the phrase 2 plus 2 do we see 4, so why do you substitute 4 for 2 plus 2? Now, if you understand logic, and you understand obviously basic math, then you understand that 2 plus 2 and 4 are the same numerically. Therefore, rather than continually saying the long-winded 2 plus 2, it's just as accurate and simpler to say 4. So likewise, people get up in arms regarding us referring to certain dealings, in the Bible as covenant because the word covenant is there. They're ignoring the fact that the concept is there. You know, it's the same problem that we run into when you just talk to non-Trinitarians. The word Trinity isn't in the Bible. Therefore, it must be a man-made doctrine, ignoring the fact that yes, the word isn't there, but the concept is. Now, when you understand what a covenant is and the essential elements of it, then you should be able to read certain passages of Scripture and understand why we have described it in the language of a covenant. Now, talking about definitions of of a covenant, generally speaking, a covenant can be defined as a mutual consent or agreement of two or more persons to do or to forbear some act or thing. Now, I say generally speaking because as we're gonna see in a moment, theologically speaking, this definition does not do full justice to God's covenant with man. We see throughout the history of mankind, people entering into covenants with one another. You know, there are those that we might not describe with the word covenants, but they are, such as, for example, treaties among nations. And then there are those that we do use the term covenant, just like a marriage covenant. In the scriptures, we see people entering into covenants with one another. You know, just a couple of examples of that would be, for example, in Genesis chapter 26, between Isaac and Abimelech, we see them entering into a covenant together. We see also in 1 Samuel chapter 18, in verses 1 through 4, David and Jonathan entering into covenant. I'll read this. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Then Jonathan made, oh, excuse me, verse two, and Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. So we see throughout the scriptures um, the idea of covenants being established. Now within the understanding Of covenants, there are certain essential elements that make something a covenant. And those essential elements, those common traits or properties would include the contracting parties between and within a covenant, promises being given, and certain stipulations or requirements. Every covenant that you'll see will have these elements in them. Now, in some, these elements are more expressly laid out to where you can clearly see it. In others, they are there, but rather than to be explicitly stated, they are implied. Now that is pretty important to keep in mind, because when you're looking at certain covenants in the scriptures, for example, like the covenant of works, where when you read Genesis 1 through 3, you don't see any explicit stating of a covenant, but as we will see, and as Jason has taught us in his lesson, the text clearly implies that there is one. Now, regarding the different types of covenants that that we have, so there are four basic types. The first, while we wouldn't necessarily consider in the strictest sense of a term, covenant would be known as a contract, and we include it here because it does involve a sort of relationship that is established between parties. In this type, it tends to be a little bit more transactional in nature, for example, When you look at Genesis chapter 25, verses 29 through 34, we read this in the account of Jacob and Esau. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Does Esau despise his birthright? So we see in this passage here, Jacob and Esau making an agreement. Jacob would give Esau stew and Esau would give Jacob his birthright. Completely equal as far as, as, far as the exchange, right? So interestingly enough, something like this in this crazy exchange here, that makes me think that this is probably where you, you first get the idea of maybe wanting to have lawyers kind of review the terms of a contract first because I don't think Esau realized just how much he gave up for just some soup. <laughs> the second type of covenant, more strictly speaking, would be what's known as a parity covenant. Now with a parity covenant, you have two parties who are more or less equal entering into a covenant with one another. Now, this can be between people, tribes, and nations. And with this form of covenant, you have a firm bond of union being made and maintained between two parties for their mutual benefit. You know, the verses that I mentioned earlier, Genesis chapter 26, for example, of Isaac and Abimelech. You also have in Genesis 21, I want to say, with Abraham and Abimelech, and 1 Samuel chapter 18 with David and Jonathan will be examples of this form of covenant. Then you have what's known as a covenant of grant. Now, with this type of covenant, you have two parties who are not on equal terms. You have one who is superior or a powerful party, and the other who would be considered the inferior or the weaker party. And this form of covenant is one which is freely and independently instituted by the powerful party for the benefit of the weaker party the obligation of fulfilling the covenant falls entirely on the superior party. And then the last type of covenant is what's known as a suzerainty covenant. Now this final covenant has some similarity with the previous mention, the covenant of grant, but the primary difference is that while within the covenant of grant, if you recall, the obligation of its fulfillment falls entirely on the superior party, With the suzerainty covenant, the obligation falls on the weaker party, otherwise known as the vassal, to the superior party or the suzerain. Now, the suzerain imposes a relationship with his vassal in which the vassal submits to various obligations to his suzerain. Now, in other words, the suzerain sets the terms to the various obligations. There is no negotiation with this type of covenant, as in, for example, a parity covenant. But in turn, the suzerain undertakes to protect the vassal. Now, in me giving these definitions, now I'm sure as you're hearing it, there are some of you who may recognize that there are certainly some aspects of God's covenant with man that maybe can be described in one form as a covenant of ground or in another form as a suzerainty covenant. So I want to make this point before you go too deep into trying to do that. We don't want to pigeonhole everything into these definitions. Yes, in one sense, God supplies all that is necessary in our redemption. So you can see how in one sense, we could see something like the covenant of grant, but also we see clear obligations that we have to fulfill lest we become covenant breakers. My point in giving you these definitions is to aid you in being able to see things more covenantally, but I don't want for you to go overboard and start to restructure all of the Bible based on those terms itself. So we have briefly discussed kind of the ins and outs of covenants from a more technical standpoint. What I want to do now is start to look at this from a more theological standpoint. I want us to take a look at how the idea of God's covenant is presented in the Bible itself. I want to first start with The overarching covenant, that covenant of redemption. Now, this covenant, which I'll be spending most of next week really diving into, is not really a covenant made with man, but within the Godhead for the benefit of man. In this covenant, the covenant of redemption, you have all three members of the Trinity vowing to provide all the means of salvation for his elect people. And this takes place before the world was created. We see a prime example of this in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, in verses 3 through 14, where Paul writes this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So we see in this passage here, you know, the idea of this redemption that we have being pre-planned before the foundations of the world. And along with it being a covenant that took place before the creation of the world, we also see in this passage that it involves all three members of the Trinity. These are the contracting parties of the covenant. The Father elects a people for whom Jesus Christ will die for and the Holy Spirit will apply that work of redemption. Now, I like to call this covenant, the covenant of redemption, an overarching covenant because none of the other covenants make sense without this covenant first being in place. And with that overarching covenant in place, we next have the covenant of works or the covenant of life. Now, Pastor Jason spent much, if not all, of one lesson Really diving into this covenant, so I won't spend an entire lesson here, but I will take note of it for next week as well. This was the first covenant that God made with man, specifically Adam, who was acting as our federal head or representative in the garden. The promise of that covenant was everlasting life to him and his posterity, which is why oftentimes you hear it called the covenant of life, because life was promised. The stipulations of the covenant was perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience to God, typified in not eating of the forbidden tree, lest he and his posterity receive the curse of the covenant, which would be death. Well, we know what happened from there. Adam sinned and fell from the estate that he was in into the estate of sin and misery. And at this point, we see another covenant being made called the covenant of grace. Remember, this is all under the overarching covenant of God's redemption. And this covenant was made indirectly to the elect. It was made directly with Jesus Christ, the federal head of the redeemed. And we being in Christ benefit from that. We see, matter of fact, in our own confession, in the larger catechism, question 31, the divine's answering the question of with whom the covenant of grace um, was made with in this way they say that the covenant of grace was made with Christ as the second Adam and in him with all the elect as his seed. And then we see directly from the scriptures in the book of Romans chapter five, verses 18 through 19, Paul writing this, therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men, those in Christ. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, Christ, the many will be made righteous. It is this covenant of grace that we start to see unfold throughout the entirety of Scripture. We see it in its kernel form in Genesis 3, verse 15, where God promises to send the seed of a woman to crush the serpent's head. We continue to see the unfolding of this redeemer throughout the rest of the Old Testament in various other covenants, such as the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and culminating in the new covenant and the revealing of Jesus Christ of Bethlehem as the redeemer in the New Testament. It is with this covenant of grace that we see the different administrations from the Old Testament to the New. In the Old Testament, all the sacrifices and ceremonies pointing towards the Redeemer, and in the New Testament, the ordinances, the sacraments, looking back at Christ, our Redeemer. Now I said this earlier and I want to reiterate it now. It is important to note that both the covenant of works and the covenant of grace fall under the overarching covenant of redemption. If we don't remember that and have that as what gives rise to the other two, then effectively we are saying that God made an original plan, covenant of works, that failed and had to be recalibrated in a second covenant, covenant of grace. Even more so from a more dispensational point, you could even see how with not some, not all dispensationalists, they would even make the argument that God had one way that he dealt with people from the time of Adam to Noah and another way that he dealt with people from Noah to, to Abraham and then man messed up and then God had to recalibrate again and again. This happens when you don't look at things from an overarching standpoint and understand the big picture that God has in mind and the covenant of redemption helps us to see that there was an overarching plan established within the Godhead that gets implemented through the other covenants that we have. Now, as I bring all of this to a close, one of the things that I want to say is, you know, throughout the lessons that we've had here, one of the things both myself and Jason in these lessons have tried to make abundantly clear is that God has an ultimate end game, a big picture plan, an ultimate goal that he is accomplishing. That goal is for God to glorify himself and for us to glorify God in the fullness of his attributes. And all that he does is with that in mind. Do not forget that. That includes these covenants that he establishes. With the covenant, excuse me, with the covenant of redemption, we see the self-existent, infinite, and eternal God demonstrating his goodness, and in particular, his love towards the elect, The mercy and grace of God, which are, if you remember, aspects of his love, being manifested toward those whom he has chosen to be in Christ. With the covenant of works, we see the justice of God, in particular his rectoral and distributive justice on display as he demonstrates that he sets the rules, his rectoral justice, and also he will reward um, obedience and punish disobedience, his distributive justice. We also see God's long suffering towards those who deserve immediate justice by delaying the punishment that they will receive with the covenant of grace and all the various covenants within that one. We see the holiness of God being manifested from the giving of the law in Exodus chapter 20 to the ceremonial laws and the sacrifices to even him setting apart a people for himself in both administrations. We see God maintaining his own moral excellence. We also see the truthfulness of God and the promises that he keeps towards his covenant community. With all of these covenants, we see the depths of God's knowledge and wisdom in planning all of this out, the unchangeableness of his big picture plan, the magnitude of God's power, the extent of his sovereignty over all things, and the perfect execution of his will. God desires that he be glorified in the fullness of his attributes, and we see in these covenants that he establishes that fact being executed. So now this concludes our lesson for today. We are gonna continue next Lord's Day, Lord willing, with a deeper look at that overarching covenant, that covenant of redemption.